What a privilege and honor it is to be here for our first time, Elaine and myself, here at Eastern University, and to uh, tell you what a privilege it is to be here at this great uh, university dedicated to the pursuit of faith, reason, and justice, to be here partly under the auspices of the Templeton Honors College and indeed the Agora Institute, uh, a, an institute that really so much speaks to everything Elaine and I hold dear, civic virtue and the common good. It is uh, really such a pleasure also to be in the presence of the rabbis and many of the students of the uh, Kohelet Yeshiva High School. Are you here? Yeah. You're here. Thank you. I didn't know you were going to be here. Thank you so much. I feel so much at home among you, and I hope uh, I hope I can uh, meet you properly after the lecture. And I'll tell you when it's finished, okay? And then we'll uh, <laughs> then we'll get together. But what a privilege! And and really, I want to say thank you to the rabbis of the yeshiva. You are blessed with great teachers. Uh, to thank uh, uh, Professor Snell and for his, the inspiration of his own work and uh, to pay a special tribute to, um, to four very special people who are with us tonight. I want to, first of all, thank uh, and say how touched I am to be in the presence of Professor and Mrs. Uh, Robert and Cindy George. Robert, you have been one of the great, great public intellectuals of America, a great voice of religion in its broadest and most humane, and it's a privilege to be in your company, and we wish you continued blessing and success. And as we say in Hebrew, acharon chaviv, last but most precious of all, to say what a, a, a real delight, as well as a privilege for Elaine and myself to be in the presence of not only cherished friends of ours, but people to whom so many thousands and more are in their debt, to Dr. Jack and Dr. Pina Templeton. I, I think I thank you first of all for your support for the Honors College, your support for the initial funding of the Agora Institute, but for everything the Templeton Foundation has done under Jack, your late father's leadership, and now under yours. We salute you and may God bless you with good health and strength for years to come. Amen. <laughs> Friends, uh, at my lecture on Monday night that Professor Snell was referring to, uh, somebody asked me, what, what can Jews learn from Christians? And I forgot to give the obvious answer, um, which is how to begin and end on time. <laughs> But I see in deference to the joint Jewish-Christian nature of this evening's gathering, you have very beautifully finessed it, so we begin only ten minutes late, <laughs> which is a wonderful way of splitting the difference. So I thank you for that. How wonderful it is to see Jews and Christians gathered together in this common pursuit of the common good. It was Professor Robert Nozick, our late Professor Robert Nozick of Harvard, who once said, when the Messiah comes, 
he will be met by a delegation of Christians and Jews who will say, welcome Messiah. By the way, is this your first coming or your second? <laughs> And he says, I advise him not to answer the question. <laughs> uh, but uh, really and truly, the Agora, or as we call it, the Rehova Shel'ir, the public square of shared debate is where the religious voice ought to be heard. And sometimes civil disagreement matters almost as much as civil agreement. There's a passage in the Talmud that I find incredibly moving. It's in the Tractate of Ketubot, and it describes two rabbis, Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish, third century rabbis who learned together every day. And the Talmud says that Reish Lakish died. And Rabbi Yochanan had no one to debate with. And the rabbis were very distressed. They thought if Rabbi Yochanan, who was the greatest sage of his generation, uh, the putative author of the Talmud Yerushalmi, if he has no one to talk to, he will wither and die as well. So they provided him with a young rabbi who knew everything. He knew all the, all the traditions, the Tesevda, the Mishnah, the Brighton, everything. And whenever, and he would stand with uh, Rabbi Yochanan every day. And every time Rabbi Yochanan made a statement, this young rabbi would say, Rabbi Yochanan, there is a Mishnahic teaching that supports you. And after a few days of this, Rabbi Yochanan turns to heaven and says, Reish Lakish, where are you? They've sent me a guy who tells me that everything I say is right. You think I need him to tell me I'm right? I know I'm right. But when Reish Lakish was here, he would tell me 24 reasons why I was wrong. So I would have to find 24 new reasons to prove that I was right. And that's how knowledge increased. And that is the real pursuit of knowledge. When we can argue together, as we call it in Judaism, machloket l'shem shamayim, an argument for the sake of heaven, then God loves that argument because it is out of that encounter with views different from our own, that civil argument, that each of us grows. And we grow in respect for one another. May that tradition of civil debate always be the case here in this university and in this great country where beautifully and movingly Jews and Christians meet as friends. And may God bless your and our deliberations. Amen. Friends, you've asked me to say something about religion, society and the common good. And I want to look at the connection between those three ideas and there, the connection, I think, is fundamental. But they have been challenged in the recent decades from various directions. There has been one strand of argument associated with the late John Rawls, who argued that in the public square we have to use what he called the language of public reason. That is, language anyone can share. In other words, when speaking in the public square, we have to leave our religious convictions behind. We can talk religiously in church or in synagogue, but not in the public square. That is one line of argument. Another line of argument, far more aggressive, has come from the new atheist Richard Dawkins, 
Sam Harris, the late Christopher Hitchens, who hold that religion isn't just irrelevant to our public de deliberations, but actively harmful. And then thirdly, there is an aggressive secularism that seeks really to uh, abandon and to impose almost an abandonment of traditional Judeo-Christian ethics in relation to the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, and so on and so forth. Now, I hold the opposite, that uh, when you begin to lose the religious basis of a society, you then begin slowly, almost imperceptibly, but inevitably, that very strong sense of the common good. Because more and more and more, whether you're driven by politics or economics or advertising or consumerism or what have you, you are focused on the question, what is in it for me, not what is in it for us. And you begin to lose that sense of the common good. Secondly, you begin to lose a sense of civility, a willingness to uh, work together for the things that unite us. And instead, a new kind of incivility begins to appear in which the ruder you can make your book, the more copies it sells on Amazon.com. And so if you're polite, nobody ever buys anything you write, but if you're very rude, they do. And a new incivility begins to be the norm. And then, slowly but surely, there is a loss of trust in institutions and in leaders. And that is, I think, what happens when we lose this sense of what transcends us, what is bigger than each of us. But I'm going to leave those practicalities to question time. And instead, if I may, I just want this evening to look at some fundamentals of theory. And I do want to do so very, very simply um, by, um, by telling you two stories. But I want, as I do so, to say what conviction lies behind what I'm going to say. I love reading atheists, but I love reading the really good atheists. And there was no better atheist, no more profound atheist, than Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche, I think, framed the issue correctly. Because Nietzsche defined his ethic, which he saw as opposed to the Judeo-Christian ethic. His ethic was the will to power. And I think the Judeo-Christian ethic is precisely a critique of the will to power. And therefore, the great choice that stands before us, stands before every civilization that has ever walked this earth, has been between the idea of power on the one hand, and on the other hand, the power of ideas. So what I want to talk to you tonight about is the power of ideas. The power of two remarkable ideas at the heart of the tradition we share, which is the Hebrew Bible. And first, let me begin with my first story. When I became chief rabbi, you know, and I have to say, the greatest kindness God ever does for us is that he never lets us know in advance what we're letting ourselves in for. <laughs> I discovered that to my amazement, I was called on not just to talk to my members of my own community, but to talk to politicians. Politicians love talking to rabbis. Why? Because, number one, they know 
that the rabbi doesn't want their job. <laughs> and number two, the rabbi is not going to say to them, why weren't you in church on Sunday? <laughs> so I got to know certain politicians, John Major, Tony Blair, in the early days of my chief rabbinate, and they were turning to me for advice, and I suddenly realized that if I'm going to be giving advice to politicians, I'd better learn something about politics. So I began to study in spare time political theory and the philosophy of politics, going back to the beginning, to the early days of Plato's Republic, Aristotle's politics, all the way to the great classics of the modern age of Hobbes's Leviathan, John Locke, Rousseau, and so on. And as I was reading these books and hundreds of others, a feeling began to grow that something here is not quite right. And I can actively remember the moment that I actually, it actually clicked what wasn't quite right. We do a lot of traveling and I suffer from a great deal of jet lag. Um, I'm suffering from it right now, which always reminds me of the famous story about the man who dreamt he was giving a speech in the House of Lords and woke to discover he was. <laughs> <clears throat> Elena and I had been traveling in the opposite direction. We'd gone to Hong Kong. And I woke up at four in the morning, completely jet-lagged, thinking this is the middle of the day, and it wasn't. And I went for a walk in Hong Kong through the Botanical Garden, and I was, it was dark, and as, you know, suddenly... In the middle of this botanical garden with no other human being anywhere near, it suddenly clicked. I ran back to our hotel room and scribbled for the next two or three hours the ideas that became a book of mine called The Politics of Hope. And I want to share with you that one insight that changed, suddenly made me click. What is the difference between Western political theory as it goes back to Hobbes and, what, and the political theory we discover in the Hebrew Bible? And here it is. The meta-narrative, the key story with which modern Western political philosophy begins is that of Hobbes in the Leviathan. 1642, England experiences its civil war. 1649, Charles I is executed. 1651, Hobbes publishes the Leviathan. Trying to answer the obvious question, if we no longer believe in the divine right of kings, then what justifies our having a king or a monarch or a ruler at all? What legitimates the use of coercive power? What legitimates the Leviathan, this great monster of the state? And Hobbes' answer was very simple. Hobbes' answer was, without a state, without police, without laws, without means of enforcing those laws, every one of us would seek our own benefit and our own gain, and the result would be that none of us would ever be safe. Because any time any one of us had something that somebody else wanted, they would try and take it from us with violence, and the result would be a complete collapse of social order, as is tragically happening in various parts of the world today. And life as he famously called it, would be nasty, solitary, brutish, and short. And the result is that people agree to give up some of their rights of freedom 
and hand them over to a centralized power that on behalf of all of us assures the rule of law within and the defense of the realm against enemies without. That is the idea which has come to be known as the social contract. And it is perhaps the most fundamental idea of all in politics since the 17th century. Now the very interesting thing is that there is a social contract in the Bible. Anyone know where? There is a Hobbesian social social in the Bible, and it is in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, chapter 8. The people come to Samuel, who is a priest and a prophet, and they say, we want a king. And Samuel says, you know, ask God. And God says, well, look, warn them what it will be like when you choose a king, and if they still want a king after all the warning, then give them a king. So Samuel warns them what will happen when they get a king. He'll take your sons into his army. He'll take your daughters into his kitchen or into his palace. He'll take the best of your lands. He'll tax you and you will cry out on that day because of the king you have chosen. This has got nothing to do with contemporary American American, as it, Professor George? I'm sure it doesn't. Anyway. And the people say, nevertheless, we want a king. And God says, if that's what they want, that's what they will have. And that is the classic case in all of history of a social contract. You give up some of your rights. You know you're going to lose some of your freedoms, your children, your fields, and so on and so forth. But you give them up in order for there to be a central power, first Saul, then David, then Solomon. And that is the first social contract in history. And it is a foundational act the moment at which Israel becomes a kingdom. But what fascinated me is that this is not the only foundational moment in Judaism. It is, in fact, the second foundational moment in Judaism. And the first one occurred many centuries earlier, before the Israelites had even entered the land, at Mount Sinai. And you read about it in Exodus 19 and 20. And that is not a social contract at all. It is a social covenant. What is the difference between a social contract and a social covenant? A contract is like, have you ever had your car break down? You want a mechanic, you want to put it right. You do a contract. You ask a mechanic to come and mend your car. He tells you how much it's going to cost. That's a contract. You get married, that is a covenant. That is the difference. A contract is two people who have no particular ongoing relationship with one another who agree to exchange something. I will give you money. You will give me your services for mutual advantage. I will gain because my car will work. You will gain because you get the money. And that is a contract. It implies no lasting and ultimate relationship. It means that I gain and you gain. A covenant is something different. A covenant is when two or more individuals come together and pledge themselves together in a bond of loyalty and love to do together what neither can achieve alone. And that is something quite different from a contract. A contract is about interests. A covenant, like getting married, is about identity. It's about who am I? 
A contract is between two eyes, two self-interested individuals. A covenant is about coming together to create a we, something new, something bigger than me. So a contract brings benefits, but a covenant brings about a transformation. A contract, a covenant has got nothing to do with power and everything to do with agreeing to be there for one another in a pledge of mutual responsibility. Now what is really remarkable about Exodus 19 is the very idea that God might make a covenant with human beings. After all, he said a covenant is when two people come together to do something that neither can achieve alone. What is there even conceivably that God cannot achieve alone? To which the answer is easy. There's one thing God cannot do alone, and that is God cannot alone live within the human heart. For that, we have to do our part. And therefore, in Exodus 19, God says to the Israelites, you see what I've done from you, I, I brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt, I brought you to me on eagles' wings, I would love you to be my special people, but you have to agree to be Mamlachet Kohanim V'goy Kadosh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the people agree, and at that moment, they forge a covenant. And that is the first foundational moment that turns the Israelites from a group of escaping slaves into a people. And that dual foundation is something that exists in the Hebrew Bible, but doesn't really exist anywhere else, except, oddly enough, in America, which is another story which I'm not going to go into. A covenant is something that's very special. It, it, it creates a special language of politics. So, for instance, a covenant is always grounded in a relationship. It always has a story to it. The Israelite covenant is the story of God bringing the people out of slavery in Egypt. Secondly, a covenant is always mutual. Thirdly, it, 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 it needs the people to willingly agree. If you look carefully in the Bible, God cannot reveal himself at Sinai and utter the Ten Commandments until the people have said, as they say in Exodus 19, and as they say twice in Exodus 24, all that God says, we will do. Naaseh. Or as, one, as they say in 24, Naaseh and Ishma, we will do and we will obey. Number four, a covenant is extended over time. It, 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 the covenant the Israelites make in, with God extends back into history to the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and forward into the future. And fifthly, covenant involves the idea of collective responsibility. We're all responsible for one another. As Jews later put it, Kol Yisrael, all Jews are responsible for one another. And I suddenly realized that it was this duality that made the Jewish political theory different from the Western one, or the Hobbesian one, because it had both a social contract and a social covenant. The social contract that made Israel a kingdom, the social covenant that earlier had made it a people, a holy nation. If I can put it in contemporary terminology, a social contract creates a state. A social covenant 
creates a society. And that is what makes Jewish politics different, for instance, from Greek politics, the politics of Athens. Now, the idea of covenant played a very large part in the birth of the modern world. In Switzerland, where Calvin developed this idea, in Holland, in Scotland, in England, where John Milton and John Locke developed the idea. But there is only one country known to me where the idea of covenant played a part not only in the 17th century, but continuously from then to this day, and that is the United States of America. America is a covenantal society in a way that's remarkable. So, for instance, in November 2008, I had the privilege of addressing the European Parliament, and in the course in, uh, wherever it is, I've forgotten, where is it? I don't know. Uh, where is it? What? Strasbourg. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was speaking. I never listen when I speak, so I, <laughs> I give sermons, I don't take them. Anyway, so I said, I don't know what Barack Obama is going to do on the 20th of January 2009 when he gives his first inaugural, but I, can, I don't know what he's going to say, but I can tell you in advance what he's going to do. He's going to renew the covenant. Every American president in his inaugural address renews the covenant. The most classic example was Lyndon Baines Johnson in 1965. But this language is used by everyone. Lyndon Baines Johnson, if you remember, uh, no, you weren't born those days, no, sorry, um, uh, said, you know, they came here, the exile and the stranger, and they made a covenant with this land. It is there in uh, Thomas Jefferson's second inaugural. It is there in... Uh, Bill Clinton's second inaugural in 1997, the promise we sought in a new land we will find again in a land of new promise, uh, etc., etc. This is biblical language. Basically, the American story is the story of the book of Exodus, and instead of the Red Sea, you've got the Atlantic. Instead of the Egyptians, you've got the English. Instead of Pharaoh, you have George III. One way or another, it's the same story, but... Uh, with slight variations, etc., etc., and it is summed up by John F. Kennedy's famous statement that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. This is religious language. No other Western country, I don't think any other country, full stop, has this religious political culture. And you can see it. I tell Brits this, and they, you know, because they, they don't notice it. Go to Washington, walk around the memorials. What will you see? You will see words. You will see stories. You go to the Lincoln Memorial, what do you see? On one side, the Gettysburg Address. On the other side, the Second Inaugural. There, you go to the Jefferson Memorial with its six little spaces, each with its line from one of his speeches, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. You go to the Jefferson Memorial, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Every memorial tells a story. Now go to London, London is full of memorials. None of them tell a story. You know what it says on the Churchill Memorial? And believe you me, Churchill delivered as many immortal sentences as anyone in all of political history. What does it say on the Churchill Memorial? Churchill. <laughs> no monument in London tells a story. They tell you who it is, but they don't tell you what did he say. 
What did he add to the British story? Because Britain is not a covenantal society. It's a traditional society. And as uh, Robbie, you may know, my uh, old philosophy tutor, Roger Scruton, who, uh, Roger Scruton, who wrote about Britain. Britain is a traditional society. In a, Britain, a traditional society, is where things are there because they're there. <laughs> or as I discovered once when I was invited by some very senior people in, uh, in the British establishment to have lunch once, and they gave us the name of the restaurant, and we're walking up and down this street, you know, in, in the middle of London, and we can't find it anywhere. And we ask people, where is this restaurant? And they tell us, oh, it's over there. And we go over there, and we see it hasn't got a name on. And we suddenly realize, if you have to ask, you don't belong. <laughs> Whereas America, which was built on immigrants, and every time an immigrant comes to America, they have to learn the American story. And that is the difference. A covenantal society is a society that has a story. And in addition, a covenantal society is a society based on collective responsibility. And hence there is a phrase that runs right through American politics from the Declaration of Independence to today. It was the leitmotif, the repeated phrase in Barack Obama's second inaugural on the 21st of January this year. And it's a phrase you will never, ever hear in a hundred years in British politics. What is that phrase? We the people. That is an American phrase. No British politician will ever use the phrase, we the people. Because in Britain, sovereignty belongs to Her Majesty the Queen and we are subjects. Authority does not rest with we the people. There's a ruler and they're ruled. It's a democratic and constitutional monarchy, and we wish the Queen Mazeltov on a new great-grandson, and it's a lovely boy. They grow up and marry a nice girl, and all the rest of the things that a rabbi ought to say on a moment like this. And, uh, but one way or another, we the people is a, a sign of a covenantal society. And Britain isn't, but America is. Now, the man who understood this better than anyone else was the young French aristocrat who visited here in 1830, the young Alexis de Tocqueville. And what Alexis de Tocqueville saw so clearly, because he came from a country in which, in France, the Catholic Church was still immensely powerful. And here he is reading about this new American democracy, where as a matter of the First Amendment, there is separation of church and state. The result is that since there's no established church, the church therefore has no power. And in a country where religion has no power, it presumably has very little, very little. And what he discovers is exactly the opposite. That in France, religion has a great deal of power, but absolutely no influence. And in America, it has no power at all, but immense influence. So influential that he regarded it as the first of Americans Political institutions, it was the most influential thing in America. Why? Because it supported marriage and the family, because it led to schools, because it helped people create charities. It made civil society. And that is the religious dimension. It, the social contract that creates a state creates political society. 
but the social covenant that binds us in bonds of love and belonging and loyalty and mutual responsibility, that social covenant creates society, or as we've come to call it today, civil society. It is those two elements that make the Judeo-Christian ethic different from other kinds of ways of seeing polity. Now, and as I say, that was hugely influential in the 17th century in Britain, but no longer, but is still influential here. Now, it's very interesting that there is no such thing as a controlled experiment in history, because every historical development is unique. But there is pretty much as close as you can get to a controlled experiment. Because there were four revolutions that shaped the modern world. First, the British. Second, the American. Third, the French. Fourth, the Russian. 1642, 1776, 1789, and 1917. The first two, Britain and America, England and America, were done on the basis of biblical values. As they say, John Milton, John Locke, and even Hobbes. Hobbes quotes the Bible 674 times in the course of the Leviathan. Hobbes is in dialogue with the Bible, not with Plato's Republic or Aristotle's politics. So it is fascinating that the American and English revolutions were based fundamentally on the Bible and they were undertaken by religious individuals, fundamentally by Puritans, whereas the French and Russian revolutions were undertaken in response to philosophies. In the case of France, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. In the case of Russia, Marx. And look at the difference. Britain and America did create societies of genuine civil liberties, whereas the French Revolution very quickly descended into the reign of terror and the Russian Revolution into 70 years of repression and totalitarianism. If you want an empirical proof that biblical politics, by sustaining civil society, actually creates what uh, uh, Alexis, what, uh, what de Tocqueville called an apprenticeship in liberty, then you have that proof. So that is the first story I want to tell, which is the story of my book, The Politics of Hope, of how religion, the Judeo-Christian heritage, adds to the social contract that generates politics and power and the state. It adds the social covenant that binds us in this bond of civil society. The second story is um, how I came to write my book, The Home We Built Together. I didn't tell this story in the book, but here's the story. Um, Tony Blair was a very religious politician. He used to read the Bible every night. The only trouble is, whereas in America, a politician is allowed to, and sometimes even has to mention God, in England, you mention God, you're out. Um, every time Tony Blair was asked about his faith, his press secretary, Alistair Campbell, intervened and said, we don't do God. Now, this was really quite difficult for Tony Blair. And so the result was, whenever we sat together, once we'd done our business together, uh, whatever we had to discuss, he would send his guy out, my guy out, and we'd sit together, and we would study Bible together. The only trouble was, I never knew in advance 
what bit of the Bible we were going to study together because it was always the bit he'd been reading the previous night and since he couldn't tell anyone the bit that he'd been reading the previous night, I always had to uh, be on my toes because I never knew what we was going to discuss. So we discussed all sorts of stuff, <clears throat> Jeremiah, Job, Micah, etc., etc. But on one occasion, we were sitting together and he turned to me and he said, Jonathan, I've got to the boring bit. I said, which boring bit, Prime Minister? <laughs> he said, you know, the construction of the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus does go on a bit, doesn't it? I said, you're absolutely right. I said, I will show you how right you are. I said, there are only two acts of creation in the entire Mosaic books. Number one, God creates the universe. Number two, the Israelites create the sanctuary. How many verses does it take God to create the universe? <laughs> 34, 31 of Genesis 1 and 3 of Genesis 2. How many verses does it take to, to, to describe the Israelites' construction of the wilderness, of uh, the t sanctuary? Anyone anyway, Jewish here will know it's Parashas Truma, Tetzaveh, Havaki, Sisa, Vayakal, and Pegude, practically 600 verses. It takes the Israelites 20 times as long as to make the sanctuary as it takes God to create the universe. Mind you, that's easy. Sanctuaries are put together by committee. So, <laughs> so he said to me, why is it, Jonathan, why is it? And, you know, and thinking on this very moment, I said, uh, well, I think the answer is quite simple. It's not that difficult for an omniscient, omnipotent creator to create a home for human beings. What's really difficult is for frail, finite, fallible human beings to create a home for God. And that is why the Bible focuses on that at such length. And I thought that was an okay answer, and he thought it was an okay answer. <laughs> but it didn't entirely satisfy me, and I will tell you why. Because once he'd asked the question, I asked myself the question, okay, I understand why the Bible is so interested in it, but if you didn't know in advance which book it was going to go into, which book would you put it in? And there is really only one answer. You would put it in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is about the service in the sanctuary, the sacrifice, the rituals. That's where it belongs. What is the book of Exodus? I would call the book of Exodus the story of the birth of a nation. That's what it's about. The Israelites go from being a family to being a people, from being slaves to being free. It's about the birth of a nation. What has the building of the sanctuary got to do with the birth of a nation? That was the question that stayed with me for many years until suddenly a new problem arose in British politics. And that was multiculturalism. Now, multiculturalism, which was undertaken with the very best of intentions, turned out to be a pretty bad idea. It was supposed to encourage a more tolerant society, but whether we look at Holland or France or London or wherever you look, actually it's produced a much more fragmented and fractious society. And instead of leading to integration, it has led to segregation. And I was asked by various politicians to help them think through a road beyond multiculturalism. And that was when I began thinking yet again 
about the book of Exodus. Because in the book of Exodus, Moses is concerned, how do we build one nation out of these very fractious individuals, out of people who in any case are divided into 12 tribes, plus, according to the Bible, a mixed multitude. How do you turn these very argumentative, differentiated people into one cohesive nation? I suddenly realized that in a sense, Moses was faced with the challenge of moving beyond 12 tribes into one nation. How do you move beyond multiculturalism? And the short answer is that the story of Moses is not terribly encouraging. What happens? He goes, he says to his people, we're going to be free. His first intervention makes things a little harder. They have to make the same number of bricks, but this time without straw. The people complain. Eventually, after 12 plagues and a series of miracles, they go free. They go into the wilderness. What do they discover? No food. They complain. There's no water. They complain. He gives them water, it's not Perrier, they complain. (laughs) He divides the Red Sea for them. For three days, it says, they believed in God and Moses, his servant. After three days, they're complaining again. This is a very Jewish thing to do. (laughs) It's one of my favorite Jewish stories of all time about Goldberg, who in his late 70s, sadly, suffers a little bit of a heart tremor and is rushed into the finest hospital in America. I hope I haven't got this wrong. Uh, Massachusetts General in Boston. And he is there for a week. And after a week, he checks himself out into a very, very old, run-down Jewish hospital in the Lower East Side of New York. And the doctor, Cohen, wants to know, Goldberg, why did you leave Massachusetts General? Did the doctors not understand your condition? Goldberg says, the doctors, every one of them, a double Einstein. About the doctors, I can't complain. He says, was it the nurses? Weren't they nice to you? The nurses, angels in human form. I can't complain. Was it the food? You didn't like the food? The food, like manna from heaven. About the food, I can't complain. So he said, Goldberg, why did you leave there and come here? And Goldberg, with a big smile, says, because here I can complain. (laughs) So what does God do after all these complaints? After all these complaints, he does the most magnificent, unprecedented thing it is possible to imagine. He puts in a personal appearance at Mount Sinai, the first and last time God appeared to an entire nation. And they tremble, and they are full of awe, and they stand aback. And how long does that last for? Forty days. Day 41, they are making a golden calf. What do you do to go one better than ten plagues, division of the Red Sea, and the appearance of God at Mount Sinai? What is one better than will, that will turn this fractious nation into a cohesive entity? And what God does next is so unexpected, it is stunning. He says, Moses, you want to turn this fractured nation into one people, get them to build something together. And that's what happens. Moses asks each of them, give whatever you like. Whoever doesn't want to give doesn't have to give. 
and some give gold and some give silver and some give bronze and some give jewels and some give skills and some give their time and everyone gives. And for the whole of the construction of the tabernacle, there's no complaint, no backsliding, no rebellion, no sin. And they give, and they give so much that Moses, for the first and last time in a fundraising campaign, has to say, enough, I've got too much already, stop giving. And that is when I realized what was transformative about the building of the tabernacle was it was the first time the Israelites were able to give and not receive. It was the first time they had a chance to create something and not be dependent on God. The first time they were able to say, I made this, not somebody did this for me. And that is when I realized a religious truth, that it isn't what God does for us that changes us. What actually changes us is what we do for God. But I suddenly realized that Moses had hit upon the solution to a multicultural society, and this is the way I put it in the book. 19th century model, I called it in very English terms, the country house model. I don't know what would be the American equivalent. A hundred strangers turn up. They're immigrants, they come from a strange land, and they've nowhere to live, and they come to this big country estate, and the owner of the estate says, visitors, how wonderful to see you. I have the, this huge mansion with all these empty rooms. Please come, stay as long as you like. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful. There's only one trouble. He is the host and they are just guests. Anyone who wasn't a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant felt in the 19th century, yes, I have a home here, but I'm a guest. Certainly in England, not in America, but in England. So that model didn't quite work. And in its place in the 1970s came the idea of society as a hotel. You pay your taxes, you get your room, and you can do whatever you like in your room so long as you don't disturb the other guests. Although I did come across one very wonderful device, one one. One person who spent a lot of time in his uh, in hotels and felt that uh, the idea of placing an early morning call was a little, you know, a little crude and alarming. So everywhere he went, he put requested an early morning call for the two rooms either side of him, and the muffled sounds of indignation <laughs> gently woke him from his slumbers. <laughs> But so long as you don't disturb the other guests, you pay your taxes, you've got your hotel room, that's multiculturalism. We each have a room. There's the Christian room, there's the Muslim room, there's the Sikh the room. The, the, the only trouble with that is you don't feel at home in a hotel. A hotel is not a home. So how do you move beyond multiculturalism without going back to the idea that here are the hosts and we're just guests? The idea is the home we build together. That is how Moses united the Israelites. He said, yes, you're all different. So you each have something unique to contribute to the common good. This thing we're building together. That is what society is. Integrated diversity. We can each 
have our separate identity, but we bring it as our contribution to the common good. And that is a political philosophy that moves you on from 19th century melting pot ideas, from 20th century multicultural ideas, and this wonderful idea that society is like a tabernacle and we each bring our contributions. And that brings about a political philosophy that is active, not passive, that focuses on responsibilities, not just rights, that focuses on giving, not just receiving, that focuses on those wonderful words that John F. Kennedy immortalized from, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, and that is how you integrate diversity into the common good. And that became the home we built together, which was the one book of mine that actually did, thankfully and, and unexpectedly, have an influence on British politics. I must say how moved I am that you here have read some of my books because this is always very thrilling to me because my late mother of blessed memory always used to say to me, Jonathan, when are you going to write a book that I can understand? <laughs> so those are the two ideas of the home we build together and the politics of hope that was never published in America, but you are right to say that it constitutes one chapter in a book called The Dignity of Difference. And these are religious ideas. Covenant and the home we build together are essentially religious ideas that Jews and Christians share. And they are essential if we are to exercise responsible citizenship, civility, and pursuit of the common good. The state embodies the idea of power. But society is built on the power of ideas, especially the idea that we are all responsible for one another and that we all have a share in helping to create the common good. That is because each of us is in the image of the one God who created us all. May that God, the God in whom we each believe, give us the strength to promote the common good and create a civil society of which we can truly be proud. Thank you.